This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls, and today we're launching our first podcast in the Modern Law Library series by talking with Gilbert King, author of the newly released book, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. Gilbert, Thurgood Marshall was involved with hundreds of cases in his position at the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund during the late 40s and early 50s while the Groveland case was going on, uh, of course, including his groundbreaking school desegregation cases. Can you tell us more about the Groveland case and what first drew your attention to it? Yes, I was actually in the Library of Congress doing some research on another book that I was writing at the time, and I I came across Thurgood Marshall's name quite a bit, and he just seemed to be this sort of dynamic leader within the NAACP, um, and he was just very, when I, what sort of struck me was he was very press conference conscious and very media conscious about, you know, he knew that he couldn't solve every problem in the courts and within the law, so there was a lot of publicity and working behind the scenes with politicians, and I just sort of stumbled across a couple of his memos on the Groveland boys, and I just saw him sort of reaching out extrajudiciously to politicians and uh, and clergymen to sort of work on this case, and I just thought that was really fascinating that he was really so involved, like beyond the courtroom. And so when I started looking into the case, I just uh, was kind of overwhelmed that I had never heard about it before. Yes, it's incredible having read the book. Marshall actually had some criteria for the kind of cases he'd allow the Legal Defense Fund to take on. Can you discuss what those were and how they related to the Groveland case? Right. Well, one of the things is they had a lot of uh, criminal cases coming into them, you know, from all over the country, especially down south. And a lot of them were really heartbreaking cases, uh, rape cases where, you know, the parents would write a letter to to, uh, the NAACP saying, you know, I have a 14-year-old daughter who was just raped by a politician in town. And, and, you know, they let this guy off on bail. They're dropping the charges and nothing's happening. And and it kind of Marshall's, you know, the whole NAACP was sort of hamstrung in that case because they couldn't force a process. Execution. And it was heartbreaking for Marshall because he often have to write these letters back to the parents and the people in the community saying there's really not much we can do about this. But the times they could get involved was when black men were falsely accused of rape, and that happened quite a bit. And Marshall said, you know, we really have our pick of these. There's so many of these. We have to establish some criteria to get involved. And so he set these three criteria that he he thought were very important. Number one, the case had to demonstrate injustice based on race. Uh, Number two, the accused had to be innocent. Now, that left a little bit of, um, you know, interpretation, but Marshall was very adamant about that. He said, listen, we have a lot of these cases here, and and a lot of these guys are being falsely accused. Go with the ones who are falsely accused because we cannot afford to make a mistake in here and have a case collapse. And the third thing was that the case had to establish some kind of future precedent. In other words, they they were likely to lose these cases in court. I mean, these, you know, sometimes down south you have a jury of 12 men. They were just not not going to acquit a black defendant of rape, especially involving a white a white woman. Every time the phrase "the flower of southern womanhood" appeared in the book, I knew something horrible was about to happen. Exactly, and a lot of times the the people on the jury they 
in these cases, they would say, you know, that wasn't too sure if this guy was guilty or not. That's why I gave him life in prison. I mean, that was it, it wasn't like reasonable doubt led to an acquittal. It was like reasonable doubt maybe kept you out of the chair, but you were still going to jail for it. And Marshall knew he was in trouble from the start on these cases all the time. And that's why he said these cases had to establish future precedent so that when they took him to a higher court like the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court could look down at them and say, you know, this this here you did uh, improper grand jury, there was prosecutorial m- misconduct, and uh, those kind of things. So so Marshall was very, you know, coerced, uh, coerced confessions was another big one that they overruled several times. In the case of the Groveland boys, these four men were accused of rape by a white woman named Norma Paget, right. and the sequence of events is just overwhelming and horrifying with what went on both in the courtroom and most especially outside of the courtroom and, you know, confessions beaten out of of the uh, defendants and just a string of, of horrifying things. Early on, the case was assigned to a young NAACP lawyer named Franklin Williams. Can you talk about the initial difficulties that he and his colleague, I believe it's Howard Hill, uh, right. faced even finding local representation for them? Yeah, it was just really horrible. First of all, they were absolutely terrified to go into Lake County because of all the violence and because of the sheriff, Willis McCall, who was just, you know, wreaking havoc among the blacks. The houses were burned down after this, you know, alleged rape. Uh, the Klan had rolled into town, and, and these, these young lawyers were just absolutely terrified. They were threatened at every turn. And so as soon as they were indicted, the, the judge said, I think it was 28 days till trial. And First of all, there were not very many black lawyers in Florida at the time, so they really had to look out for just finding someone who was willing to take on a rape case, like you said, a flower of southern womanhood type case. And for a lot of the white lawyers in Florida, they just saw this as a career ender. You know, if you're going to go and defend black men against the rape charge of a young girl, it's going to be the end of your career. And so they really searched all over. It took them weeks to find someone who was willing to do it. And by that time, they had just five days to prepare a case. And, you know, in a case like that where you have the prosecution is withholding, you know, witnesses who sort of don't go along with the party line of the prosecution, they were withholding evidence. They, the, the, the defense just had nobody to call. All they could really do was put the, put the defendants on the stand themselves. Another thing that was interesting was that after Marshall got in touch with the FBI, they did conduct investigations into what had happened in town, but they weren't sharing the information with the defense, which seems extremely frustrating. Do you do you think that that kind of relationship still goes on? You know, I, th- I think that that's part of the past. I really do. That, that was a time when, when, when the FBI sort of had this very strange relationship with these local sheriff's departments because they needed the cooperation of these local law enforcement agencies. And a lot of times the, the men in the, in the FBI down south were southerners themselves who sort of they related more to the sheriff's department. They were law enforcement people themselves. And so they'd go in and investigate these civil rights crimes, and the sheriff would be like, what are you looking into this for? It's a black man. You know, find something else. Just leave us alone. And that was sort of the way the FBI sort of proceeded. And so there was this fine dance that was going on between Marshall and um, J. Edgar Hoover at the time because Marshall was just furious that he couldn't get the FBI to solve one civil rights crime, but they could solve any, you know, spy case or any stolen car case. But whenever it was a lynching, they'd never find any suspects. And that was infuriating to Marshall. And, you know, a lot of times he would he would persuade uh, Hoover to, to sort of push a little bit harder to get these. And they'd, they'd go to the U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorney 
would be a white supremacist and a segregationist, and, and he would be covering up for the, for the sheriff's department himself, and, and they would be begging him to sort of form a grand jury to go after these guys who beat the defendants. And, you know, the U.S. attorney is just sort of whitewashing it himself. So it was a very difficult thing to see, but I don't think that happens as much anymore. What new research were you able to turn up in this case? Because I, I believe this has been written about before. Right. I think um, a lot of it was when I had access to the LDF material, that sort of gave me a lot of the behind-the-scenes information about how the NAACP sort of went about doing this case. Um, I would say the main, the, the, the most important stuff, though, was the uh, the FBI finally uh, – I fired the Freedom of Information Act, and uh, it, when I finally got those, those were all unredacted files. So a lot of the interesting things, I think – I don't know if you, if you like the part where um, – this, this young woman who sort of goes into town as a spy. Yes, the undercover detective, the yeah, private investigator. I, just, I looked so hard for her. I could not find out who she was, but I found all her journals, and they definitely protected her identity. I could never find out who she was, and I really I looked, I would say, for months. But that was in, that was in the um, sealed files, too. And just a lot, of, a lot of those kind of details and, and just sort of the FBI's internal memos where – but this, this I find fascinating as a researcher because a lot of times, you know, they'd go into these law enforcement agencies and they'd say, we want to get a statement on that beating. And they would have a statement read, and it was just very nondescript. And then the, the law officer would say, but I'll tell you off the side what I know. And they would tell them the off-the-record off the things that were recorded in the memos. And so I was able to use a lot of that because there was a lot of the names that were involved, uh, a lot of the people in the community and the clan and those kind of things. So I just sort of – a lot of the new information, especially the, the, the FBI investigation into the shooting, like that, that stuff had never been revealed before where they found the bullets uh, or the, the last bullet underneath Irvin's neck, which I just can't imagine. I still can't believe that that stuff was able to be hidden from uh, from the press and from you know the defense because that was – you know, that was a murder charge that they really covered up. <laughs> you know, you talk about local law enforcement. One of the main characters in the book, um, and he's a terrifying one, is uh, Sheriff Willis McCall. Right. And um, the kinds of things that went on with him were extremely chilling, I would say. Yes. And, and, and one of the things that, that was another thing that I really found difficult to believe, but in a, in a county like Lake County where, you know, it was actually a pretty wealthy county because of the orange business. And uh, McCall got put into power in 1944 on uh, sort of slid into power by these wealthy citrus barons who sort of wanted a no-nonsense guy who could enforce the labor in, in the citrus groves. And he held on to power for 28 years. And it was a reign of terror. I mean, he was literally the most powerful person around. Even the governor couldn't get to him because he had, he had things on the governor, and 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 he was just, he was just a very very powerful man in Lake County, and he and he it, he was, there was no way that he was never going to be unelected. In fact, after he, after he'd done some of his most violent, things in in this whole story. You know, people said that's going to ensure his reelection for the next 12 years. I mean, those were the voters. He had the voters behind him. And so he sort of had this sort of un untouchable way of go going about business in Lake County, which is f absolutely frightening. Yes, until I think it was 1972. Right. Was it wasn't until 1972 he got suspended. He, he actually kicked a black prisoner to death, and they suspended him. 
Um, and uh, it was an election year, and he spent that whole election year in, in court defending himself. Uh, he, he was indicted, but he was not convicted. But he just barely lost that election after all that. And uh, you know, he, he said that was the excuse. If he, if he had more time to campaign, he would have easily won. Well, McCall was directly involved in the shooting of three of the defendants and the deaths of two, and that sort of relates to one of the other characters who I found very interesting was, was the prosecuting state attorney, Jesse Hunter, who was this good old boy, southern lawyer, red suspenders, um, and he's such a conflicting figure for me because even after Sheriff McCall, you know, shot these defendants in cold blood and Hunter lost confidence in the defendant's guilt and all of this, he still continued the prosecution, and then he relied on testimony he knew to be false and racked up, I guess it was 20 instances of prosecutorial misconduct. Right. That's but exactly. then, after he did, did that, after he ensured that the remaining defendant would face the death penalty, he cooperated with the FBI and he urged the governor to commute the man's sentence. What, right. uh, what insight do you have into this lawyer's? Well, I thought I thought he was really a fascinating because he sort of represents the sort of change of heart, and he sort of becomes enamored with Thurgood Marshall himself. And he starts to listen to him and respect him. You know, about halfway through the story, he, he he sees the shooting, and he starts to realize that Sheriff Willis McCall is out of control, and so he kind of he sneaks up to visit the Walter Irvin who survived the shooting, and. I think at that point he really becomes convinced that McCall is lying and that, you know, it's very possible that these guys are innocent. And he starts to have doubts about it. But I think inside his ego, he it doesn't allow him to, to lose the case. And so he still prosecutes the case. He still... He still uses information that he knows is false. Like you said, all, this, all these instances of prosecutorial misconduct, Marshall was keeping track. It was, I think it was 23. They didn't even object anymore. And at the end of the trial, he gets up there and he tells the jury, listen, I'm dying of a fatal disease, and I just don't want to go out with a loss on my record. And he basically begs them to convict. And Marshall, at that point, they're just sitting there, well, this, if this isn't appealable, I don't know what is. But it, curiously, at the very end, he, you know, he he is actually sick, and I think he realizes him and Mabel, re, the reporter, they they realize that McCall has gone out of control, that that they really overstepped their bounds, and they start working behind the scenes to save the life of Walter Irvin, the last of the Groveland boys, which I, I find fascinating, and I, I wish I had more insight. I wish I wish I could really figure out, but but you know, I did have some transcripts of Mabel, who spoke with him a lot. And she said, you know, he really just sort of had a change of heart, not just about Sheriff McCall and the guilt of the Groveland boys, but just sort of about civil rights in general. And he didn't want to go to his deathbed with a with a bad conscience. Yeah, very fascinating. I really do recommend this book to everyone listening to the podcast. Um, can you read us a little excerpt? Absolutely. Um, this is an interesting, this is part of the prologue, and it, it just sort of describes Thurgood Marshall, who is, um, you know, he's in the, at the very early stages of the civil rights mu movement. He's just really starting to do Brown versus Board, those earlier cases. And he, he, he still has a desire to take on these very dangerous and dramatic criminal cases. And a lot of his friends and associates are like, Thurgood, why are you doing this? We really need you for civil rights. You know, why are you putting yourself through that? It's sort of suicidal. But oh, it just, was, and in part of it, you said that you described a very close escape from a lynching. Absolutely. I mean, there was a time, and it's hard to imagine this. Here's a future Supreme Court justice who wins a case down in Tennessee, and he's literally pulled over on the side of a road as he's leaving town by law enforcement 
thrown in the back of a car and taken down to the river where, you know, there's other witnesses there who said this was a lynching that was just about to happen. It was only a miracle that he was able to get out of there when some more witnesses showed up. And it's just hard to imagine, but that's the kind of danger he faced when he'd go into these towns down south. So I'll read to you this part where um, just sort of what, what it felt like for Thurgood to sort of get on these trains and head down south. Marshall would later say, there is very little truth to the old refrain that one cannot legislate equality. Laws not only provide concrete benefits, they can even change the hearts of men, some men anyhow, for good or evil. Thurgood Marshall might never have spoken those words if he hadn't defended the Groveland boys. The case made a lasting impact on both him and the NAACP's legal defense fund. It also became the impetus behind the NAACP's capital punishment program, which eventually led to the Supreme Court ruling that capital punishment was unconstitutional as well as to the court's later decision to invalidate the death penalty for rape. The victories came only after many train rides to towns where no hotels or restaurants accommodated people of Marshall's race. Local blacks would welcome him, though, with hospitality and tears of gratitude. They'd clean their houses spotless for his stays. He'd join his hosts at their dinner table and tell them stories from his travels that brought laughter to the night. He'd eat their modest offerings of salt pork and poke salad with such a plum, you'd think he was dining on his favorite she-crab soup over drinks with friends back in Harlem. The woman would have lunches packed and delivered to him in court each day. Broken-down cars would get glued together to taxi him back and forth. Later in the day, word would spread, men are needed to sit up all night with a sick friend. You'd hear it whispered everywhere. They'd all know what it meant. They were lining up armed guards to keep Marshall safe from night-riding Klansmen while he slept. Alice Stovall, Marshall's secretary at the NAACP, recalled the effect Marshall had on blacks when he showed up at courthouses in small southern towns. They came in their jalopy cars and their overalls, she recounted. All they wanted to do, if they could, was just touch him. Just touch him, lawyer Marshall, as if he were a god. These poor people who had come miles to be there. Southern juries might be stacked against blacks, and judges might likely be biased, but Thurgood Marshall was demonstrating in case after case that their word was not the last, that in the U.S. Supreme Court, the injustice in their decisions and verdicts could be reversed. He was a lawyer that a white man would listen to, and a black man could trust. No wonder that across the South, in their darkest, most demoralizing hours, when falsely accused men sat in jails, when women and children stood before the ashy ruins of mob-torched homes, the spirits of black citizens would be lifted with two words whispered in defiance and hope, Thurgood's coming. You can't have a much more dramatic end to the podcast than that. Gilbert, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lee. I really enjoyed the talk. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.